I have found myself fond of saying lately that if you're waiting for something, <laughs> then you're not in kingdom. If you're waiting for something, you're not present. If you're waiting for something, then you're not on the way. And um, I wanted to talk about that for a, a bit this morning because, you know, Jesus is very specific. Everything that he talks about is here now, and we don't get that as modern Westerners, but the kingdom is here now. Salvation is here now. How is salvation here now? Because to a Jew, salvation is spiritual liberation here and now. It's not about the afterlife. They don't really think about the afterlife. There is one, but that's God's domain, and it'll take care of itself if I keep myself here and now. Take a look in your... um, I didn't put it in your bulletin, so never mind. Don't look there. I just remember, I, I had so many things I wanted to get in there, I just some things didn't make it. But at Luke 17, Jesus says something really interesting. He says, when the Pharisees demanded to know when the kingdom was coming, tell us when the kingdom is coming. But he answered and said, the kingdom of God comes not with observation, and neither shall anyone say, look here or look there, for behold, the kingdom is within you. It's among you, you might see it translated. It's in your midst, because the Greek preposition entos means all three. But if we go back to the Aramaic, something even more interesting happens. The word that is translated as observation, it's a verb that means to guard, preserve, or to watch something, either physically watch it or mentally watch it, as in remembering it. To guard, to preserve, or to watch. That's observation. And then the word that's translated within is legal men, and that is two prepositions kind of strung together in Aramaic. And the first one is dealing with something that is within, deep within. It can refer to your, your belly, your viscera, something that is really inside. And then men is another preposition that can mean, you know, about and through and among and within and which and... What it is really saying there by stringing those two together is a dynamic motion from inside to outside. Okay? So if we take a very liberal translation straight from the Aramaic, it can come out something like this. The kingdom that you look for, Jesus talking to the Pharisees, does not come from watching outside, from waiting for it to happen, from guarding property or status or wealth. It will not come by pointing to something or someone outside of yourself. The reign of unity, which is the best way for us to translate the kingdom of heaven, the reign of unity, the principles of unity, if you will, that will free you, come from inside out, when the unity within you expresses itself among and in the midst of the community around you. So, once again, Jesus is absolutely pointing with immediacy to the here and the now. The kingdom is living and active, Just as much as the scripture is living and active, the kingdom is living and active. The best analogy I can come up with is like like music or dance. You know, you're either making it or you're not, right? It's not something you wait for. Are we making music? Are we making movement? Or are we not? It's that immediate. It's that present. It's always right here, right now. If you're waiting for it, then you're not making it, right? It's momentary. It's real time. It's always now. The Gospel of Thomas has a 
has a, has a great line for Jesus. And those of you who are not familiar with the Gospel of Thomas, it's an extra canonical gospel, so I guess we don't have to pay attention to it. But it, it's got some wonderful takes on some of the sayings of Jesus that are in the canonical gospels from a little bit different point of view. So in the Gospel of Thomas, and it's just sayings, saying 113, the kingdom is spread out upon the earth and people do not see it. I love that. It's here, it's now, it's spread out everywhere. You can't go anywhere where the kingdom is not. But you cannot see it. You cannot participate in it. You cannot immerse yourself in it. It's totally our choice. Always our choice. Every moment is a choice to be in or out of kingdom. You don't just decide to be in kingdom and you're there for the rest of your life. No, it's a choice we make consciously every single moment. That's why our moments vary so much. Some are good, some are bad, and it's really the same moment, but what makes it good or bad? It's, am I participating in it? So, if we're waiting for it, we're not experiencing it. It's not here. But at the same time, as long as we're here breathing, as long as we're here in our earth suits, or any other way you want to say it, as long as we're here living human lives, right? Time appears linear. Time appears sequential. So we're always waiting for something, aren't we? (laughs) There's always something coming that is not yet present to us because of the way that we experience time. So even though Jesus is talking about being absolutely present here and now, at the same time, there is a sense that we're waiting. And we're not good at waiting. We don't like waiting. Even whether it's waiting for something good or something bad that we're anticipating or dreading, The waiting for us is excruciating. So if you think about it, in a way, Jesus' entire ministry, Jesus' entire ministry was geared at teaching us how to wait. How to spend the time of our lives, the time that we have here, in the midst of constant change. There's always something coming, always something that we're anticipating. We're supposed to be here, but we have to deal with that too. How do we do that? How do we, I don't know, split that particular baby? How do we embrace two sides of that paradox? You know, He's trying to show us how to do this in a very Jewish way. And this is something that we're not going to get as modern Westerners. As the world seems to be spinning out more and more, as things get crazier and crazier out there, it's creating a lot of anxiety, a lot of stress among people. It's creating a lot more questions to me about what is going on. Is there a connection to what's going on with the end times? I mean, I was absolutely shocked that the U2 concert in St. Louis had to be canceled because the police couldn't guarantee the type of protection that they normally would for a a major event like that because of the unrest, because of the court decision, and so on and so forth. I think, this is the United States. This doesn't happen in the United States. We can't control our streets enough anymore that a major act like you 2 can come in and safely perform in one of our major cities in the country. In Berkeley... A conservative speaker was coming to speak at the university there. And um, streets had to be cordoned off and buildings had to be closed and classes had to be canceled because of the same thing, this this civil unrest. And it it just feels like the whole fabric of our civil society is, is, is coming undone. Now, is it really any different now than it was in the 60s 
I don't know how many of you remember the 60s. I was just a little kid back then, but I can still remember Tin Soldiers and Nixon coming, four dead in Ohio. I remember that. You know, Is it any worse than that, or is this just the latest version of that? Is it just cyclical? What's going on here? I, I don't know. I can't tell you for sure. But I know that we can all take the threads of what we see, and if we bring them forward, man, it's heading to some sort of breaking point. Something's got to give, right? And it's scary. It scares us. And so it makes us start to wonder, is this some sort of end time sequence that we can point to? And people want to know, is this the book of Revelation? And they're taking lines of Revelation and they're matching them up to the headlines in their newspaper and they're trying to make that particular connection and they're scared about it and they want to know more and more what in the heck is going on? Are we in this end time sequence? The trouble is, is that when we look at these prophetic books, we don't know what the purpose of them is is anymore. We are so far divorced from the the Hebrew culture that produced them, you know, from somewhere near 2000 to, you know, 1700 years ago, um, and, and it's in a uniquely Jewish literary genre, that we are going to approach them as we approach things in our modern Western society, and are we doing what we're supposed to be doing? And just really briefly, to try to understand prophetic and apocalyptic literature. They share many common traits, but they're very separate. The prophets of Israel were those who spoke for God. That's what was understood. They spoke for God. Any foretelling of the future that they did was only incidental. It was only because they were speaking to a generation right here and right now about what is going on. The Jewish prophets are grouped both before and after major calamities in the history of Israel, and mostly around the two catastrophic calamities of the destruction of the first and the second temple. The first temple in 586 BC, the second temple in 70 AD, those were the two defining major catastrophes in Judaism. There was a second Jewish-Roman war in 132, but the temple was already gone. To lose their temple, the temple was everything to them. And so the prophets come before the catastrophe has taken place. Their purpose is to warn. Their purpose is to encourage repentance. Their purpose is to try to get the people to change their direction so that they can avert the disaster, the calamity that's coming. That's what it's about. Everything that you hear the prophets saying is repent, change direction. Can't you see where we're headed? We're headed off a cliff. Look at the direction we're going. Just change direction. Because that's exactly what repentance means. It's not about contrition or feeling sorry. It's about a change of direction in Hebrew. Change the direction and avert the disaster. The apocalyptic books come after the disaster, after the calamity. So the books we see about Dan with Daniel and Ezekiel, they were written in exile in Babylon. The book of Revelation was written around the turn of the first century, maybe 30 years after the disaster of the fall of the second temple in 70 AD. What is the purpose of those books? The disaster has already happened. You're in the smoking crater. Something has happened to you as an individual and as a people that is unthinkable. You can't imagine what the loss of the temple was to the people. We think about the loss of the Twin Towers. Imagine if we lost those and the Pentagon and the White House and the Capitol building and, and, and. 
What would that do? What if we lost downtown LA? What would that do to our psyche as a people? The purpose of the apocalyptic book is to encourage, to instill patience, and above all, trust in the perseverance of the people that God's promises will be kept. God will intervene and deliver. This is going to happen. You can take it to the bank. Even though you see no possible way that that could happen. God will directly intervene in history if he has to in order to make these things happen. These are the twin purposes to avert the disaster, to warn and to bring repentance and then to encourage after the calamity to get the people to persevere, to keep on in the direction they're going and to trust that God will come through for them. But in apocalyptic literature now, that's being written at a time when a foreign power now has their boot on your neck, right? And so we see all of this fantastic symbolic imagery and we see all this coded language. But if you're going to talk, <laughs> if you're going to talk stuff about the emperor of Rome, all right, then you can't do it directly because he's going to come after you. But you can say that his number is 666 and if he reads that, he goes, huh? What the heck is that all about? You know, you can't be dissing the Roman Empire, but you can call it the whore of Babylon who reclines on the seven hills and get away with that. You can see that what is going on here is they are dealing with the difficulties that they see right now because prophetic literature, apocalyptic literature was written to the generation that had experienced whatever was going on. And so it's coded that way. We don't see that. But the people did. The people understood at the times, most scholars believe. And so the question is, is there still an end time prophetic quality to these books that weren't fulfilled at that time that we're still looking forward to? And that's an open question. And of course, most Christian scholars believe that there is. And so you have all this interpretation for our time from books that are dating back a couple thousand years or more. Do we have it right? I have no idea whether we have it right or not. But more importantly, we have to look at it this way. These books were not focused on the future. When they were trying to encourage repentance and encourage perseverance, they were looking right here and right now, focused on how do we wait? How do we live our lives waiting for the possible catastrophe, waiting for the calamity, and then how do we live our lives and wait for the deliverance, for the healing? for God's promises to come to fruition. And what is the overarching metaphor that is used to help the people to understand these principles and to bring them through what they've experienced as a people and individually? And surprisingly, it turns out to be the Jewish wedding tradition. And you think, what in the world does a wedding tradition have to do with anything? But the people understood themselves to be the bride of Yahweh God. They believed that their wedding tradition was the mirror of what happened at Sinai when God came down to the mountain and met Moses and gave the law, gave the contract, spoke it to the people. And their wedding tradition reflects exactly that. And then fast forward into the New Testament, the followers of Jesus saw themselves as the bride of Christ. And so this wedding tradition has all the steps and all the pieces that were informing the people how to wait, 
how to live their lives here now, intimately connected and immersed, but at the same time anticipating something that was coming in the future. What I tried to do was to give you the, the, the basic pieces in your inserts. So if you take a look at those, let's, let, I just want to, as quickly as possible, go through this wedding ceremony because it's absolutely beautiful. Jewish weddings have actually two parts. There's the Kedushan, which is, literally means the consecration or the sanctification, but it was the betrothal. Most Jewish weddings, especially in the, all Jewish weddings in the ancient world and many into the Middle Ages, were arranged weddings. They were arranged by the fathers of the tribes for all sorts of reasons that had nothing to do with love or attraction or anything. In fact, many times the bride and the groom, the first time they met, was at their betrothal, at the Kedushan. But in Jewish ceremony, the Kedushan, the betrothal, is binding. As soon as you are betrothed, it's as good as being married, even though you may not consummate the marriage or actually have the wedding ceremony for one or two years afterwards. You needed a certificate of divorce to get out of a betrothal. So the Kedushan was the father sending his son, sending the groom to the home of the bride, bringing certain things. He would bring a contract, a marriage contract, which was called a ketubah. He would bring um, wine, and he would bring gifts, which were called the mohar, which would be the dowry. It would be the payment that the father of the groom would give to the father of the bride in exchange for the labor that he would be losing when his daughter left because the sons never moved. The sons stayed with the clan, stayed with the father's house. It was the daughters that moved to the home of the groom. So you always gained daughters-in-laws and you never lost your son. And so to pay for the loss of that labor was what the mohar was all about. And so the groom would come to the house of the bride. He would bring these gifts. And the first thing that he would do would be to read the ketubah, read the contract to the bride. These are the terms of our arrangement. These are the terms of our marriage. This is what I give. This is what you give. And it would be up to her to accept or not. Obviously, there's a lot more pressure than that, but she would have to accept. But when you think about it on Mount Sinai, what was happening? With the lightning and the thunder and God on the top of the mountain, Moses goes up. God reads the law to him. God announces to the people that he's giving them this contract, this covenant between the two of them. And that's exactly how the people understood it. They understood it as a marriage contract. The Torah, the law, was their marriage contract between them and their their God, between them and their groom, if you will. But take a look at Matthew 5.17. Jesus is saying, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Jesus is affirming that this contract is still in place. But what he's going to do, he's going to say, not in the way that you think it is, not in the way of this mindless following of rules, but in the fulfillment of, of this contract. And so everything that he does, if you think about it, everything Jesus says, everything he teaches, everything he does is a reading of the contract, a reading of the ketubah to his people. It's the groom reading the contract to the people and asking them, asking her, will you accept? Do we have an agreement here? Do we have a betrothal, a consecration and Kedushin means literally to set aside, to make holy, to dedicate. Will this couple be that? And if the bride accepts in the Kedush, if she accepts the contract, they drink a cup of wine together. 
the first of two cups, one at the Kedushin and one at the Nisuin, which is the actual marriage ceremony. And the first cup is understood as a cup of joy. It's that when joys are shared, they are doubled. The second cup is the cup of sacrifice. When sacrifices and difficulties are shared, they are halved. And so they drink this first cup together, which seals the betrothal, right? And then take a look at Matthew 26, 27 to 29. When Jesus had taken a cup and given thanks, this is at the Last Supper, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. He's looking forward to when the groom returns, takes the bride back to the Father's house, and actually has the wedding ceremony, and they drink the second cup. This doesn't click with us, But you can bet that it clicked with the first century followers of Jesus who knew intimately this wedding ceremony. This this was the key part of their their lives, in their villages, in their towns. When a, a couple had a wedding, it wasn't just the nuclear family that was invited and the friends. The whole town was invited because the Jews understood their family as being everybody. Mishpacha, that idea of extended family, all the extended relatives, but everybody in the town who are probably all related to each other anyway, but the whole town would come. They looked forward to this. This was the time of celebration. This is what Jesus is getting across here. And then after the, the, the drinking of the cup, then there was the giving of the mahar, the dowry which would be gifts and, and, and anything that was commensurate with the labor that the, the father of the bride was losing. But later on, it became more symbolic. It became a ring or a coin that was given as the mohar. Well, Jesus was understood to have given his entire life as the price, as the dowry, as the mohar for his people. Then there's the tenaim, which is the promise to return what the groom then does is, after this is consummated, and not, not consum- the marriage is consummated, but the betrothal is taken care of, then he gives a promise that he's going to come back and then he leaves. He goes back to his father's house because there he has to pre- prepare the chuppah, which is the, the canopy, the tent under which the actual wedding ceremony is going to take place for seven days, not just one day, but seven day long wedding ceremony, and the hadar, which is the actual mansion or apartment that is going to be an add-on to his father's house in which he and his bride and their children will, will live. And so he goes off to construct those, to prepare those. And only the father knows when he's coming back because the father has the authority to say when the construction is done according to at least his code, if there weren't any building codes back then, but when he says everything is completed, then he releases his son to go back to get the bride. And so literally the son doesn't know when he's going to be coming back. He has to do what he needs to do. Meanwhile, the bride is left waiting sometimes for a year to two years. She is also preparing. Remember, Jewish brides were probably 12 or 13 as soon as they were old enough to be able to have children, they were married. So these are young girls. They need to know, how do you head up a household? How do you do the things that we do? Their mother, their sisters are teaching her. She's got one foot in each of two worlds. She's living with the expectancy that at any moment her groom could come back to claim her and she will be propelled into this new life. 
But at the same time, if he lives very far, this may be the last time that she either sees the family and everything that she knows, or she may only see them at long intervals. And so there's a bittersweetness to it at the same time. There's a sense that time is short. There's a sense that I need to suck every moment out of these relationships. Even as I look forward to the excitement of my own life, my own marriage, my own children. So the bride is waiting in preparation mode. John 14, 1 to 3. This is Jesus before the crucifixion. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. To hear the wedding ceremony in there, How can Jesus be the groom of all the people? Because in my father's house, there's many mansions. There's many hadars. They're there for you. There's always one for you. It can't be anywhere else. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. There's the tenaim. There's the promise to return. And Matthew 24:36, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. That sounds to us really difficult, especially for coming from a Trinitarian point of view. How do we square that Jesus and the Father are one if he is subservient to the Father and only the Father knows certain things? You know, we're not going to square that particular circle. We theologically aren't going to understand that. It doesn't matter. What Jesus is really doing here is alluding to what they understand intimately about how this works. He's going to his father's house. In that space, after the crucifixion, he's at his father's house and he's preparing a place for each one of us. And he will return and claim us as his bride and take us back. It's a promise we can take to the bank is what Jesus is telling them. Just as you intimately understand how this works in your lives, it's working here, now, in our spiritual lives together. And then when the Father says it's okay, the groom returns with no advance notice. The groom and the groomsmen just show up on the edge of the town and they shout in the middle of the night. It's always the middle of the night. Or they blow the shofar, which is a ram's horn trumpet thing and they blow this and they shout and everybody in the town is alerted that the groom has come because they're all waiting for it they're anticipating it right and all the bridesmaids remember they're all girls that are 12 and 13 as well they're squealing and laughing and they run and they get their torches they get their their lamps and they run to where the groom is and they create a lighted way back to the bride's house the father of the bride's house and it's just this beautiful image there And so it reminds us of that parable that Jesus told us about the ten foolish virgins and the ten wise virgins, right? When the groom comes, the foolish ones had not prepared and had oil in their lamps. And so they ask the wise ones, give us some of your oil. And they say, no, if we do that, we won't have enough and we'll be late. So you have to go to the vendor and buy some. By the time they go to the vendor and buy, of course, the, the door is already shut and they miss out. And so here's this, again, this allusion to the wedding feast that is always pointing to this mode of living that is in readiness and awareness and full of presence, even at the same time that you're anticipating a future event, trying to hold those two things together in one embrace. 
But this idea of the shout of the shofar and, and the trumpet and, and the, even the lamps, the light. Because the word for torch, the word for lamp, lapidim, is also the word for lightning. And so we see these images being interplayed in, in spiritual sense. Look at First Thessalonians 4.16 where we're talking about one of Paul's epistles. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, there's the shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, there's the shofar, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Matthew 24.27 For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. There's that lapidim, the same word that is used for the torch or for the lamp, that light that lights the way that shows the coming of the groom. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet. And they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. And a couple that I didn't include on your insert, Second Thessalonians 1.7. And to give relief to you who are afflicted as well as when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. There's the lamps again. And Revelation 19.1, After these things I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Here's all this imagery that is following this Jewish ceremony. So the groom arrives. He arrives with a shout. He arrives with the lamps and the light being led. And when he gets to the father's house, the father ceremonially turns his head as if he doesn't see him and they and the grooms would all rush in and they snatch the bride out of the house, literally grab her. It's like one of those um, you know, pajama raids. Did you ever do that as kids where you'd run in the middle of the night and grab someone in their pajamas and take them out to, I don't know, Dairy Queen or I don't know what the heck you did with them afterwards. But it's kind of they snatch her and they take her. What they do with her, though, is they put her on a raised platform. You know, you've seen those kind of ancient things around poles and the, and the guys are carrying. And they put her on this raised platform and they carry her back. And Nisuin literally means home-taking. It literally means to raise up. They take the bride, they snatch her out of her home, and they raise her up on this platform, and they carry her all the way back to the father's house. In modern Jewish weddings, if you've seen them, they raise both the bride and the groom up on chairs, and they parade them around the room. It's, it's the echo of, of this ancient practice. And in modern Jewish weddings, of course, it all happens at once. The Kedushin and the Nisuin all happen in the same ceremony, but they retain many of the same elements. In fact, the ketubah in modern Jewish weddings have become this beautiful, ornate artwork that, that is calligraphied and, and, and just, or, you know, just ornamented in so many ways that they will frame and hang on their walls you know, for the rest of their married lives. It, it's a beautiful thing. If you take a look at it from now this apocalyptic point of view, looking at, looking at 1 Thessalonians 4.17, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together. There's that word caught up. In Latin, it's raptus, which for, is the word that we get rapture from, to be caught up together with them in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Paul is referring to this process. The groom has returned, and now the people are caught up in the air. In his time, there was a great controversy because they believed that Jesus was coming back in their lifetime. And so what about those who had died? Were they going to still be caught up? Were they still going to be able to go back? And he says, yeah. Those of us who are still alive 
and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we shall always be with the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. He's saying, yeah, it doesn't matter whether you're dead or alive. You know, when the groom comes, it's coming for everybody. If you're willing, if you accepted the contract, you know, that's what this is all about. One that I didn't give you, Matthew 24, verse 37. Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. Again, more allusion to this. You don't know when the groom is coming. It happens just like that. And then there is a Nisuin, the home-taking Raising the bride up. John 6.43 No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Revelation 20 is all about the raising of the dead to new life. So there's this idea of raising up. And then finally, the next step after the bride is carried all the way back to the Father's house is that the groom goes to the chuppah this this tent of meeting, which is the analog of the tent of meeting of the Israelites as they were wandering in the desert, the actual tent where they would meet their God, which was also an image of their prayer shawl, the talit, that they would put over their head. It was like a a mini tent of meeting just over them when they would go into their prayers because they were understanding that they were underneath God's wings like the hen that gathers her chicks and puts them under her wings. It was a gathering underneath God's wings, underneath the tent of meeting, underneath the prayer shawl, underneath the chuppah. The groom goes to the chuppah and waits for his bride. And when she comes, then there are seven blessings that are said. They drink the second cup of wine, the cup of sacrifice. And then there are seven days <laughs> of partying with the whole town. That's why they love these weddings so much. But the the bride and the groom then move into the huppa. Everyone else leaves and they close, of course, they seal up the, uh, the tent and they consummate their marriage and they are now fully married. And they're going to live in that chuppah for seven days during this period. And then after the seven-day period, then they move from there into the hadar, into their actual apartment, mansion, extension of the home. This is beautifully rendered, I believe, in Revelation, at verse 21, verse 3 and 5, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. Here's this tabernacle of God again, the tent of meeting, chuppah, the chadar. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. And there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And then at verse 9, Then one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. And here's this image of this mansion coming down to earth in which every one of us has a place to be able to move into the Hadar with our groom, with 
Christ with Father God and live as husband and wife. The Jews understood that marriage was a place where you learned how to love. You didn't need to have love before you got married because most of them were arranged anyway. It was a place you learned how to love. This is the place where we would learn how to live without pain and without tears and and all those beautiful images from Revelation. So Revelation is using this imagery. Paul is using this imagery. Jesus is using this imagery in the New Testament. All from the Old Testament roots, from their roots as a people. To try to show this progression, this way through life that allows us to learn this art of waiting. How do we do it? How do we learn how to live with this two two things going on that we're always going to want to separate, the here now from the there then, but living in such a way that they are one thing and one thing only. When we read these prophetic and apocalyptic books, we miss the code, we miss the point of where they're going because they're always pointing, it seems, to just a simple Jewish bride. This young girl living in a state between two worlds, as the Jews understood it, between heaven and earth, between two places, between here now and there then, and trying to find a way to synthesize the two, make sure that she completely is immersed in her family and her relationships, but still preparing for what is coming, preparing to be a good wife, and also anticipating what is coming in a positive way. Do we have all the details of these books interpreted correctly? Well, we can't really know. And to my way of thinking, it doesn't matter that much because the broad strokes are there. Everybody is going to disagree till the cows come home, or Jesus comes back at least, on what is the interpretation of these books? How does this really line up? What's the end time sequence? And we fight and we fight and we fight and we worry. And what does it really matter? Because when you come right down to it, what we absolutely do know is that God is perfect love. The scriptures are unequivocal about that. God is perfect love. And perfect love casts out fear. So we can know and take to the bank that God never promotes fear, ever. And so any use of scripture that promotes fear is a misuse of scripture. So if you are reading these books and you are becoming fearful about the future, you are becoming fearful whether you are passing the standard, passing the test, whether you are going to be included in the book of life, whether you might have taken the mark of the beast and therefore going to be thrown into the abyss with the, uh, the devil and his angels, if your reading of these books is bringing you fear, then you're reading it wrong. Those books were never designed to bring fear. They were designed to bring repentance and a change of direction that would be a good thing for the community and for the nation. And they were designed to encourage us and to help us persevere through the difficult times They were designed to bring hope. They were designed to bring a sense of wellness and trust and nothing else. If we read them any other way, we've missed the point. The prophetic books were meant to empower us to change 
empower us to transform. The apocalyptic books were meant to encourage us to persevere and to learn how to trust. And both are not focused on the future, even though they are talking about the future. They're focused insistently on the present. How to wait in human form in such a way that we are still absolutely present to our moments. Like this young Jewish bride preparing for her life while celebrating her family and celebrating everything that is happening now to immerse in the present while anticipating, like kids, listening for Santa's sleigh bells. You remember when you did that? You know, and you were so excited. Can we do that about what is coming in the future but still be absolutely present like a child is present to right here and right now? Can we know that time is short but at the same time be acutely aware of the priceless value of each moment that we're spending with new life coming? That's how we wait. That's what the Jewish wedding tradition is showing us and teaching us. And when we take these verses and we overlay them on that tradition from which they come, we see the whole tapestry. We see the how of it. Not the what, but the how of it. And that's how we wait. By not waiting. By being fully in motion at all times. Moving dynamically from inside out. In kingdom, because we're choosing to flow, even as we know that the change is coming. Did any of you see that animated classic, The Toy Story? Remember that? There was one character who was a spaceman, and he could sprout wings, his wings would pop out, and then he could jump off a bookcase or something, and he would kind of soar through the room, and someone would say, one of the toys would say, you're flying, you're flying. And he said, it's not flying, it's falling. With style. (laughs) Remember that? I think Jesus is telling us, it's not waiting, it's living with hope. That's what we're supposed to be doing here. So as our world is spinning out, if we're not losing our hope, we're reading these books correctly. As our world is spinning out of control, if we're not afraid, even as we're aware that change is coming, and we can retain our hope, then we've heard the message. And like a good bride, we are living life as Jesus intended, squarely in the center of kingdom. Let's pray. Father, these are so hard. This is so hard to do. And we know you know that. And we know that you give us a lot of rope and that you have a lot of patience for us. But help us to keep some of these things in mind. Encourage us to go back and read these passages this week and see if we don't see this overlay of images, this message that you're trying to give us, this heartfelt loving message of how we can live fully human but fully connected to you at the same time. Thank you, Father, for giving us this beautiful book. So many dimensions. So rich. So full. 
Help us to get lost in it and to get lost in our moments and our lives at the same time. Father, again, thank you for loving us as you do. We can't do any of this except that you've done it first. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Let's stand.